Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 31, the James Webb Space Telescope. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So on this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts. Bring them right here on the show to tell you everything about NASA. So today, we're talking about the James Webb Space Telescope with Jonathan Homan. He's the Johnson Space Center project manager for Webb's Chamber A testing. Chamber A is the giant vacuum chamber that we have here in Texas. So Jonathan and I had a great discussion about what the James Webb Space Telescope is, uh, some of the testing that was actually done just about, uh, actually wrapped up two weeks ago here in Houston, uh, but also some of the testing in other centers, as well as what the telescope is destined to find. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Mr. Jonathan Homan. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light search for the red. Here she goes. Jonathan, thanks so much for uh, coming today on the podcast. I know you are a very busy man right now, especially because the James Webb is kind of wrapping up its testing operations here at Johnson. Is that right? That is correct. No, I'm glad to be here. And uh, yeah, we, we wrapped up the testing probably in the right before Thanksgiving and now All we're right. kind of what we're calling like the deintegration phase from how we had to test it to packaging it up so it can get ready for its next next step of its uh, project getting ready for launch so and that's happening soon right oh yeah no it's uh, we're actually putting it in its shipping container uh, tomorrow uh, you know and uh, <laughs> yeah. it will be uh, leaving the Johnson Space Center late Monday night probably Tuesday morning. And, okay. Uh, leaving Ellington on Thursday. Sweet. All yeah. right. So that's it. That's it. Go out for a drink after that. Celebrate. I am done. Correct. And then hand <laughs> it off to the next guy. Yeah. Uh, where's it? Where's it going next? Actually. So it's flying to Los Angeles and will uh, be at the Northrop Grumman uh, facility at, in Redondo Beach, you know, okay. south of LAX, uh, where it gets integrated with uh, the SunShield and the spacecraft bus. So the you know, the SunShield's been you know one of the huge parts of the uh, the telescope and of course yes. one of the more, most important parts and uh, so it, it has a series of testing once it's fully integrated mostly deployments vibe and, and some acoustic testing so. all right well fantastic that's why I think you're the perfect person to have here since you've been you've been here working with the James Webb Sp- Space Telescope for quite some time now so you kind of yeah. have a good sense of not only the testing but a little bit more about just what is this telescope and what yeah. what is it gonna do so I'm uh, kind of wanted to just kind of dive into that just the whole overview of what is the James Webb Space Telescope so let's start with that what is it uh, okay so yeah you know, James Webb is uh it is a kind of a general purpose science tool okay. uh it is a part of the next uh, generation of um great observatories NASA's working on so if you think of like the Hubble Hubble was probably the the biggest known great observatory in its um generation so if yeah. you think like you know you had Chandra Hubble, Spitzer, and I think a few other ones that were, you know, smaller, but Hubble was the big one. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of NASA's plan for, you know, the science uh, uh, mission and some of their observations. And James Webb is that big, big uh, observatory. So it is uh, um, not a replacement for Hubble, but a successor. 
Okay. So. so from what I know about the telescopes, and I'm definitely not a scientist or physicist or everything, so this is kind of like Hubble re- uh, can read things in the visual spectrum, and then Chandra is more kind of X-ray, and Spitzer is more... Infrared. Correct. Or did I mix those up? Nope, the, you're absolutely the, correct. Right, good, Very good, 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 yeah. So then Webb would be the visual spectrum then, right? No, 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 no. But Webb oh, is infrared. See? Okay, so, infrared. Um, so, if you, so, so uh, Hubble is known for being a little bit of ultraviolet, visible, was kind of its main spectrum. But it also has a deep field, so it did okay. some infrared type uh, imaging. So if you think of the deep field image it took where... You looked, it looked at a black spot, and all of a sudden, all these galaxies showed up over yes. time. It was like it, this really yes. small spot in the yes. sky zoomed in super far. And That's got, yes. kind of where James Webb is picking up. Okay, I see. So it is definitely uh, looking at the deeper, further, uh, older light of the universe. Fantastic. So, so what's the benefit of infrared over visual light? Uh, well, you're... Infrared, uh, because of its mission objectives, you know, it really needs to be in the infrared uh, spectrum. Um, you know, those objectives are the first light of the universe when, you know. the fir- Okay, pretty you know, big objective. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> where, you know, you know, you have stars and galaxies first pulling things together and lighting up, uh, you know, looking for the uh, why, uh, how the evolution of galaxies and uh, star systems, the birth of stars. You think of things like the uh, Eagle Nebula that, you know, Hubble have given us these great images of, but when you see the infrared, you can start seeing through it and you see stars actually forming and stabilizing or possibly even lighting up sometimes in there. Wow. And James Webb can look right through those type of dust clouds and see, you know, what's going on with, with young stars because they haven't cleared uh, their, their, their space around them like our star, of course, has. So where you've got a, a clear kind of... Uh, open area and it's a little bit older system than a younger area where there's still lots of uh, mass and gravity or mass and and elements that can pull stars together available. There you go. So it's kind of more like uh, pulling back the curtains and saying, okay, what's what's going on? What can't we see with the visual spectrum? That and also, yeah, as we know, with the universe expanding, you get the redshift. And because infrared is, you know, the, the redshift, that's why it's so cold. That's why we tested it here at Johnson at these really cold temperatures because uh, you need the observatory to be as cold or colder than the light you're trying to look at because right? everything, you know, our bodies give off an infrared spectrum. So if you're trying to detect something else, you don't want the observatory itself to be warmer. And that's why it's designed the way it is, why we uh. tested it the way it is. And, of course, like I said, you're looking at really old light, old, old um, uh, galaxies and, and stars. Yeah, you're things. looking at the history of the universe just Correct. by going farther and farther out. Yes. Fantastic. Um, so kind of, I mean, I really want to get into the testing too because that's like yeah. just the, the the kind of testing that we're doing here is, is phenomenal. And, and you're the project manager for it, so perfect person to have here. But kind of, I wanted to, before that, go into a little bit of the history. Just, you know, where this all came up. Because, you know, apparently, you, you, like you said, you have Hubble, you have Spitzer, you have Chandra, you have all these great telescopes that are looking out. But this is, this was the next step. So when did this start uh, coming together, the James Webb? Uh, so it used to be called the Next Generation Space Telescope. Okay. And it probably started um, like a... a Pulling together ideas, what what we could do, how what kind of requirements we needed, probably in the '90s. I mean, like, all right, like, yeah, I would say soon after, possibly the first Hubble repair mission. I want to say '95, '96 was kind of the first really uh, pulling together. Of, Here's an architecture that we think would work for a ne- the next great observatory. Yeah, and then I think in uh, 2002, 
they actually awarded uh, the first big contract to Northrop Grumman to be the prime contractor for delivering this telescope for uh, to NASA. There you go to build so, it. Sweet. To, yeah, to build it. And of course, <laughs> the, you know, the telescope portion of it was actually managed a lot through by Goddard and NASA and is being delivered to them. So I mean, the the kind of the high risk instruments and and all that was kind of a, a collaboration of of the different contractors, but also really managed tightly by by NASA, yeah, and with a partnership of both ESA and the and Canada. So, so I mean, it came like you said, it came shortly after Hubble. Was it kind of the excitement of Hubble and just like, whoa, these are the images we're seeing. We want more right now, and that's what kind of kind of sped up the process, maybe. I I wish I knew the actual answer. I don't know the actual answer, but I I could definitely see that that that's you know probably a a, a good logical reasoning yeah. and uh yeah and definitely you know Hubble just I think people were blown away even when it wasn't totally in focus with the lens having the stigmatism it had right. uh you know we're scientists started looking and going hey we can actually spread the light out and get some great science off of things that we didn't know about and then once the you had the repair mission what a you know huge testimony it was to the Johnson Space Center, working with other centers to, you know, go up there and repair. And now we've got a, you know, probably at the time, and you know, the, the best telescope there is because of its location being outside of our atmosphere and the size it was at the time. So Yes. And um, the James Webb is kind of going to take that a step further. And we yes. can kind of go into, like, how this thing looks. Because when you think about Hubble, it's like this school bus-sized tube, right, that's kind of orbiting outside a little bit higher than the International Space Station is right now in terms of an orbit, but James Webb is going to go further out, and it looks very different. So let's like the makeup of, of how James Webb look. I, this is an audio podcast, so to kind of describe it, I guess one of the first features that would be prominent are these shiny mirrors, right? So Yeah, so if you see the entire spacecraft when it's fully deployed, it has the three big segments to it. One, yes. they call the spacecraft bus, which is... Like most satellites, it's got all the communications, the power, the cooling, uh, everything that's requiring a lot of energy, and it is facing the sun and earth. And then, of course, you have the separation of that huge sun shield. The sun shield's like the size of a tennis court when it's fully deployed, probably yeah. even you know bigger. It's got five layers of aluminized kapton, and that separates, of course, the sun and the earth and moon from the last part, which is the telescope element, which we call OTIS right now, um, which stands for OTE and ISOM, OTE being the optical telescope element and ISOM being the integrated uh, science instrument module. And the two of them make OTE because we at NASA just love to take acronyms and turn them into more acronyms. Yeah, why not? So, uh, <laughs> so uh, that is the portion that actually has the primary mirror. So OTE is the, the, the optics, so it's the okay. primary mirror. That's 18 large hexagonal segments. Uh, the secondary mirror, which is a smaller, probably still almost the size of Hubble, but you know, a, a large, no, not, not that large, sorry, five, that two foot uh, in diameter. Um, another brilliant mirror that the, all the life is focused on, and then it goes through the center and has a, a tertiary mirror. From there it goes back and is the that tertiary mirror will send it to one of the science instruments. Okay. And so you have uh, five different science instruments, one delivered by the Canadians, the fine guidance system, two delivered by the Europeans, and then two uh, were developed by NASA in, in the United States. So, um, All right. So yeah. very international kind of collaboration yep. going on and behind the scenes there. So it goes tertiary, right? So mirror, 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 and then it's sending it to yep. 
all of these great instruments to measure different things. Yeah, so it's a reflective mirror, so all the lights collected on the primary, focused off a of secondary, and, and passed back through, versus like the old tube style, where it's strictly yeah. just lights coming through and passing from one to the next and focused on, on an, a final source. So Okay, so that first set of mirrors is, like you said, they're that, that hexagonal shape. Mm -hmm. They're just a series of gold-looking hexagons all kind of fitted together. Correct. So what was the design logic behind that? Why, why the hexagons? It looks super cool, but... Uh, it, you're, when you need a mirror that big, it's really hard to produce a single monolith. Ah. So even on the ground, there's uh, like if you go to other, some other observatories that are more modern, that they're, they're segmented. Even you know ground things on like a Keck Observatory in, in uh, Hawaii, they have large mirrors that they've patched together, and hex, hexagons make nice uh, ability to kind of fit things in a nice uh, uh, sh shape and essentially get. Not necessarily uh, a circle, but you can get the the area you want covered pretty well, and uh, and make them in segments that are large but not so big that they're difficult to to manufacture. Okay. And then uh, the other big thing is is you know Hubble is like two and a half meters in diameter, two point four or something. Okay. And uh, I don't even know, if it's, but it's larger than two meters. Yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, James Webb is like six and a half meters in diameter. Ooh. So it's significantly bigger. Um, you know, Hubble was, was all polished glass. This one's, a, you know, lightweight beryllium. Hmm. Um, they use beryllium because it's really stiff. It has a great uh, thermal performance. So, you know, you know it has to get cold. Beryllium tends to be very consistent as it cools down or heats up uh, to to go to the right shape where if you think like an aluminum pan, you heat it and cool, it might bend and warp. Yeah. Um, really, you know, all metals kind of change shape a little bit, but, but really is very consistent in holding its shape. So we know they're actually perfect mirrors when they're cryogenic and they're not perfect mirrors right now at room temperature. And that was one of the things we had to do here at Johnson was to test it that way. But, but, um, so, you know, that was one of the reasons for using the beryllium. And then of course the gold coating was put on there because gold does a great job of reflecting infrared light. So, um, okay. Yeah, not absorbing the wavelengths that they're really looking for. So, all right. So, that's an interesting point. The way that they're designed is to be imperfect here. So, when you're testing it, they're imperfect because you know, once it gets to space where you want it to do all of its work, it's actually going to form into the mirror that you want it to be. Correct. When it gets down to, um, below, you know, 40 Kelvin, it is essentially a perfect mirror. And that was one of the technologies that was developed on that was, uh, yeah. you know, they polished them as perfect mirrors. Uh, they were tested at Huntsville at the XRS-CF chamber, which is where Shonda was, was originally tested, mm -hmm. which wasn't big enough to test the entire uh, telescope like we had at Johnson, but it was big enough that they could test the mirror segments okay. and map them. When they mapped them at cold temperatures, you could see, oh yeah, now it warped and moved and uh, is imperfect, they took it back, purposefully polished in the imperfections, took them back to Huntsville um, and uh, tested them again and, and showed that once they got the temperature, that imperfection they put into the mirror turned out to be a perfect mirror at the right temperature. All that right. makes sense, yeah. Yeah, no, it totally so, makes sense. You gotta design it for you know its ultimate destination. And right now I'm sure yeah. you're looking at it just like, ah, yeah. I want you to be perfect, but. The other, sorry, going back to your first question yeah, about sure. the, the, the hexagonal shape, the other big part of that is also, you know, it's launching in a rocket fairing. 
Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's on Arian 5, it's five meter fairing, and you've got a primary mirror that's six and a half meters in diameter. <laughs> so it's bigger <laughs> than the rocket it's going on and the fairing. So you had to be able to come up with a design where you would fold those wings in and fold the whole telescope up so that it would fit in the rocket fairing and then of course deploy in space so that's actually an interesting topic is just the whole deployment secrets because you have to kind of it's going to like you said fold in on itself and then you're going to put it in this rocket and launch it so actually before i go into the unfolding where's it going to go so after it leaves north of grumman um Part of the European agreement is that they're, they're providing the rocket, which is an Arian 5. It's okay. launching out of French Guiana in South America. Okay. So, uh, you know, so that's that's its next last destination on here on Earth. <laughs> yeah. And uh, before it starts observing the, the cosmos. Yeah. <laughs> and um, then go out to, uh, is it a Lagrange point or is it? Correct. Uh, and which one? So it's an Earth-Sun Lagrange point okay. 2. Um, so uh, that's about a million miles, about a million and a half kilometers on the backside of the earth away from the sun so it hmm. it will orbit the sun with the earth and it has about a half a million mile diameter loop that it's doing about eight, i think it's 800,000 kilometer around that gravitational point so it looks like from the earth it's doing this small circle but from the sun it's kind of doing a small sine wave oh if you, if you see it okay. and uh that so it does require a little bit of energy but that it, it's not perfectly staying out at one spot it's it's kind of doing this really slow orbit around that Lagrange point. Okay. And it's a great place to be because one, you're way out there. They're very thermally stable because your your view of the earth and the moon and the sun don't really affect its thermal performance much like you would if you're low earth orbit and one side you're on the sun, the next time you're pretty well shaded facing, you know, this thing is pretty well, you're, you're the part that's looking at the earth, we know the, the th thermal input that it's going to see yeah. and the solar input. And then, you know, we know the backside of that sun shield. So, uh, it's also very clean, much cleaner than, you know, a low Earth orbit in terms of micrometeoroids and, and uh, objects like that. So, right. And it's very stable, you know, and of course, the big thing, too, is now we're not orbiting the Earth and having to protect the, the optics. You're just looking for as long as you want to look until, you know, until you have to, you're going around the sun and have to decide, okay, what's my next object I'm going to look at. So, That's right, because that sun shield is just going to be facing, you know, towards the sun the whole time, kind of blocking yep. any light coming straight from the sun. So you got this nice clear view, nothing nothing obstructing your view, and then you can kind of point it wherever you need as long as it's not, you know, directly at the sun. Correct. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but that unfolding sequence is, is going to be kind of cool, right? Because if you look at it, it's just like this giant mirror kind of hexagon gold thing, and it's going to unfold into that shape. And then the pull comes out, the sun shields deploy. That's going to be quite a sequence, right? Yeah, actually, the sun shields are some of the early large deployments that happen. Sweet. So, um, yeah, launches, you know, first thing it does is it deploys its... Uh, Solar panels starts making sure it's got plenty of energy for the rest of the trip and and yes. for the rest of the actuations and then uh, uh, you know antennas and stuff like that deploy pretty early on as well for communication purposes and then uh, you know yeah you've got that sun shield that's the, like I said it's probably the size of a basketball court tennis court it's, it's massive when it's fully deployed um, all folded up into something that's you know probably less than um, like I said three or four meters in diameter and you're, you're going, you know, so, it, you, so the, you know, it has to unfold, deploy all the, the sun shields, then 
uh, because of the, the temperature difference, we actually have a deployable tower that separates the mirror from the spacecraft bus and then it helps provide, again, a, a long length for some thermal isolation there. Oh. And then uh, once all that's done, then, you know, the, the secondary mirror would deploy and the, the primary mirror would would finish out. And then there's a few more radiators on the actual spacecraft uh, uh, on the, by the science instrument on the uh, um, telescope portion that would continue to to do some deployments until it's out there. But there's about two weeks of um, of deployments. I think there's a 183 actuators that are going off. I mean, it's a lot yeah. of uh, things happening and uh, a lot of anxiety uh, <laughs> to go out there. And it takes about 30 days to actually get from French Guiana to L2. Okay. Thirty days to get to L to L two. Yeah, about and a month. then you got another another. How long until it's fully deployed? So on its way out there, it is deploying. Oh, so, I yeah, see. Yeah, so it's doing most of its major deployments on its way out there, allowing the mirrors to cool, and um, okay, and, and, and so yeah, so you've got about two weeks of uh, hoping everything goes well, and then like I said, <laughs> another month to make sure it's actually getting into the right orbit, and uh, or a, about a month to make sure it's in the right orbit and then from there it, it uh, starts taking images and yeah hopefully the scientists will tell us when they think they've seen the first light of the universe and start telling them all uh, sending back really cool pictures so. yes i'm very excited for yeah. that for sure but i'm sure that whole trip is going to be a very very stressful time it was, for... yeah. <laughs> a lot so. going on there um but just the mission itself is just phenomenal, like what it's trying to do and then the amount of work going into it just all over the U.S. And is it being tested outside the U.S. too or is it is it just being launched from outside the U.S.? Uh, it's just being launched from outside the U.S. Okay. So, like I said, two of the science instruments were delivered by uh, corporations under ESO, so yes. European companies. Um and uh, so they were, you know, they had to go through their own certification program, but they were eventually all integrated um, into the final science package. And that uh, went through its thermal vacuum testing up at Goddard. Oh, OK. So, yeah, at their SES chamber there. And like I said, a lot of the mirror development work was done uh, using uh, Hubble. Uh, I mean, excuse me, the Chandra facility there, the XRCF at uh, Huntsville. OK, so, at Huntsville. Um, the mirrors have traveled all over the United States, uh, you know, um, mirrors technology was really, uh, I think, developed by Ball Aerospace in Boulder, Colorado. They did testing there as well. They put the in. So, I mean, the mirrors went from the company that polished them in um, uh, California and San Francisco to testing at Huntsville to be back to California to be repolished, to be testing in Huntsville, to be fully integrated with all their actuators, to be tested at Huntsville, to be, uh, you know, sent to uh, Goddard, to be in integrated as a system, um, then, you know, down here to Johnson, out to North of Grumman. So, I mean, the, the mirrors have traveled the United States and, you know, quite a bit, like I said. And then, like I said, the science instruments, some uh, were from Germany, the Netherlands and Ireland were all in collaboration as part under uh, DISA to deliver stuff. And then the Canadian Space Agency delivered the fine guidance system. And those parts were tested up in Ottawa at their um, CSA facility there in their chamber. So wow. a lot of lot of uh, work throughout the United States on this. Um, yes. JPL is managing the uh, cryocooler that's used for the, the Mirity instrument, and that's the longest wavelength that they're going to be looking at. Okay. And so it's the coldest, so it actually runs at about 
five, six, seven degrees Kelvin. Ooh, and right. uh, where, yeah, when we were doing our testing, we were at 20 degrees. So, you know, it's <laughs> like minus 423 Fahrenheit. They're really close to absolute zero. So, yeah. yeah, looking at really long, older wavelengths. And, you know, that stuff that's never been observed before will be really interesting to see yes. what shows up in that, that uh, spectra. So. Exactly. It's just amazing what you can find just from some of these telescopes now. I mean, they're discovering planets just by these small little dips in light. And you can discover, you know, planets now. There's hundreds of exoplanets that have been discovered all over the universe. So looking at the beginnings of the universe and things that have not been looked at before. It's just an exciting concept. Yeah, and you know, speaking of that, of course, one of the science objectives of James Webb now is um, looking at planets. Not necessarily looking uh. for planets, but it would look at planets, be able to, uh, it's gonna look at within our solar system, for uh, traces of um, water and carbon type structures hmm. um, on the different planets and how, you know, maybe some type of ring that maybe exists within our solar system, then be able to look for that in other solar systems and go, oh, there's signs of, you know, life-giving properties around the solar system. And then it can also look at planets and look at the spectra around that and tell you what maybe an atmosphere is made of. And hopefully, like I said, maybe discover a planet that has water, nitrogen, oxygen type of you know, things that would show signs of life, you know, carbon dioxide and things like that. So, okay, that's exciting. It's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so it's, you know, it's got the kind of the four major science objectives, you know, the, the first light, the evolution of, of uh, galaxies, birth of stars, and uh, the existence of possible life on, on exoplanets and stuff like that. So wow. it's really a great, yeah, tool. I mean, the yeah. science tool really hopefully will expand our human knowledge of what our universe is and what's around us and in our solar system uh, solar system and, and uh, galaxy and and beyond so unbelievable what a resume for the james webb space telescope <laughs> <laughs> to say what you're going to accomplish but you kind of hinted towards uh some of the testing already and just mm -hmm. the all these parts coming you know first of all traveling all over the u.s but then all coming together you know what's the story what's the story there, there uh, you have all these different places i'm i'm sure they're manufactured in different places right correct yeah. so yeah, yeah so you know goddard is the where the a program is managed out of the project's office is managed out of okay. um, you know they're responsible for pulling it all together well they again the, the this telescope element they pulled all that together so you know all the science instruments and the ISOM package was delivered to Goddard they tested it and then all the components that make up the telescope were delivered there and at their SISTIF facility which is their their huge clean room they assembled James Webb. So it's got the carbon fiber backplane, all the radiators, all the wiring was done, all, you know, everything was finally as assembled there. And they'd all been tested at a component level, but never tested yeah. at a system level. So okay. they did test it at a system level in terms of just of its vibe and acoustic to make sure it could survive, you know, launch. Yes. Um, but they could never test a full optical path and everything like that. So that was one of the main reasons of coming to the Johnson Space Center is here's where you can actually simulate where it's going to be out in orbit. And now that you've tested all these other uh, smaller components in smaller chambers, you know, you could test a, a full system in a large thermal vacuum chamber and still get to these deep space uh, thermal conditions and vacuum conditions. So. Yeah. So th so it got it got all assembled, all these different components mm -hmm. tested. You know, I used that other component levels constructed at Goddard, and then from Goddard it was tested, and then it went to Johnson, or did it kind of yeah. go around from there? It was nope. so it was right from Goddard to Johnson. So yeah. So this 
large portion of the telescope we have went from Goddard um, to Johnson, and from Johnson it's going to Northrop Grumman. So this is its last time. It is with NASA when it leaves here. Oh, really? Yeah. From there it goes to Northrop Grumman, who is the prime contractor um, to be integrated with the rest of it. And like I said, it goes from there to the European Space Agency's launch facility at French Guiana. And uh, But yeah, so it's kind of a mixed feelings. I mean, uh, you know, it's been nice having it here at two different NASA centers for for the last few years and but it's all right it's so on. so it did um you said acoustic testing at, at Goddard right and Correct. and just to make sure the, the launch is going to be okay and, and everything kind of checked out there right yeah so, the, the, the the vibe and acoustic was a very big deal you <laughs> spend lots of money and then shake something really hard that you treat with you know kid gloves for all this the rest of the time and now you're you see this uh, test where you're actually just shaking it and parts are just going all over and then you re, re at least do some type of verification to make sure everything looks like it's it's survived and ready to go so all right and, and they got did. the thumbs up and it then did. it came here then it came here all right so then what the big question you know your your area of expertise what was the testing that went on here how did that when did it come in and all that kind of stuff I'm not sure how far back you want to go but <laughs> uh, uh, um, be here forever yeah no so so the flight article got here in May of last year and in, in okay. May of 2017 but we had um, been working with Goddard probably from 2004 in All terms right. of, hey, this looks like the right chamber to do uh, what we need to do for a thermal vacuum test, you know, and but you know they, they had really different requirements um, from what the chamber was originally designed for, which was Apollo. Yeah. Uh, you know, they've got contamination, vibration, and their thermal and test duration were way different than what Apollo needed, which was fast, real fairly uh, quick, redundant type of testing with human rated, you know, really protecting the, the crew in the capsule and doing a thermal simulation of going to the moon and back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here they're like, you know, they don't care about the heat. I mean, we did because we did need to test the, uh, the, the sun shield and some of those thermal paths. Uh, and we did do that in chamber A. But for the most part, the telescope's all seeing just the cold of space. And that's what we simulated for for that. Okay. Um, I should probably ask, what's Chamber A? <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Chamber A is a large thermal vacuum chamber okay. here at the Johnson Space Center in Building 32. So, there's two chambers in that building, A and B. Uh, you know, they're both were Apollo era uh, chambers and have continued to serve uh, NASA over the years. Um, chamber A is 10 times the volumetric size of Chamber B, and it's about 65 feet in diameter, about 120 feet from top to bottom. Wow, it's huge. Yeah, it's huge. So um, James Webb was in uh, a shroud that was about 45 feet in diameter and about 70 feet tall that put it in the thermal conditions it needed. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said, in there we made a lot of modifications, uh, both from the Johnson side and from a team from Harris, which was formerly kind of Kodak, was responsible for for the optical testing. So we integrated all kinds of optical test equipment into the chamber as we were constructing some of that uh, and testing it through the years so that uh, we kind of started in about 14 really commissioning the chamber and starting to integrate the uh, and commissioning the GSE and then doing a test series we call the Pathfinder from uh, in 15 and 16 that really had a, uh, the engineering unit of James Webb with a two primary mirrors, uh, a secondary mirror and a way to kind of at least pick up light where the science instruments were. Hmm. So we could do a full series of testing to test the system and verify that we were going to be testing the telescope and not 
not the the equipment we designed to test the telescope. So, yes. So yeah, it kind of was a shakedown uh, series of tests. And we learned a lot from that too, to really kind of reduce risk, um, change our plans of operations and, um, and just uh, improve our system reliability and stuff like that. So it was yeah. really helpful. <laughs> so you kind of put this sort of, I guess, quote, pretend um, James Webb inside to see, all right, let's, let's see how this reacts and get it ready for the real James Webb. Because Correct. like you said, yeah. Chamber A was not designed to test James Webb. It was designed for, for human missions. And they put human um, human uh, uh, vehicles in there. I think the lunar module and stuff like that, right? They actually tested some in of these. Chamber B, yeah. In, in Chamber, Chamber B, they yeah, tested lunar Chamber A lunar was the, the service command module. So oh, that's that was where you command had all, module. Yeah. But Skylab was in Chamber A as well. Oh, okay. And, um, um, and then, of course, it's continued its use for just, you know, development of shuttle and space station and stuff like that in terms of more, more hardware than human. Okay, so, um, yeah. Testing, so but you know whatever you need a large thermal vacuum chamber, it's one of the very few that that exists. So you know All it's right. a great asset for for NASA to have something like that. So you started gearing it up for James Webb t- testing in 2014. You said so. Or was it before um, that? So we we had to modify the chamber quite a bit, and the yeah. big years for that were in 2009 through about 2012, where oh, we okay. actually replaced the pumping systems, uh, especially the high vacuum systems, because all of them were had an oil type of system, oil within them or an oil pumping system hmm. and everything we, we couldn't have any type of uh, oils around James Webb oh, so everything yeah. went to like real clean newer technologies um, our thermal systems used to only kind of get to about 100 Kelvin and we needed to be able to get to about 15 Kelvin <laughs> and then of course we ended up just testing at 20 Kelvin for James Webb but still we wanted to be able to you know, kind of exceed that requirement or meet it. Um, so 15 was kind of what we thought we'd need to. So we had to put a different shroud in that's a, and use helium as the cryogen for cooling it down instead of like the, the 100 Kelvin is probably more liquid nitrogen mm. type stuff. But uh, um, with that too, we, uh, you know, we, the chamber had no vibration isolation. So at the top of the chamber, now we have series of vibration isolators. Everything was suspended in the chamber. So when we were testing James Webb, all its primary optical uh, test equipment was sitting above it that was mapping the mirrors, that was reflecting the light, and then the telescope was hanging below, and all of it was in a single uh, kind of optical bench system that was supported outside the chamber on these vibration isolators. And the nice thing is it's sitting down below that, so the mass is well below the vibration isolation. And one of the nice things still about Houston is um, we didn't, have zero issues with vibration we de- we definitely had some issues with vibration but but because we're not on bedrock we sit on like you know mud and gumbo uh yes you know yeah that, you know you can we can park a tractor trailer on the back side of the building and take ln2 and we don't tend to see any of those vibrations carrying through to the chamber so oh uh, so that was a you know a big kind of a deciding factor versus a facility that's built on bedrock and you can feel things from all over and miles and miles away and it's really hard to get a quiet environment we we kind of there's not a lot of bed i think benefits for uh like i said yeah yeah yay swamp but it worked really good in terms of creating a real quiet atmosphere for for testing yeah so Um, that was one of the selling points then for bringing it to johnson was you know the the fact that it's not sitting on bedrock the fact that it can provide a quieter and less vibrating kind of environment yeah absolutely i think that you know the 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 quiet environment, um, the size of the chamber was just Goldilocks in terms of the focal points, the focal length of the 
primary mirror system. So we were able to design uh, reflective mirrors at the top of the chamber and have uh, what we call the center of curvature optical assembly, which was the main piece of test hardware in the chamber that did the mapping uh, using interferometry of the primary mirrors and make sure that, you know, like I said, you have these 18 segments that are, we started them all in like a launch lock position. They have to release and they have to kind of move and act as a monolithic mirror. So you kind of, that was a big, big thing we had to test is, hey, will this thing go to its right shape and make <laughs> sure that it looks like a monolithic mirror and not a bunch of individual mirrors or ones out of phase or something like that. And yeah, because then you won't get a clear image, right? A clear, Yeah, a clear image, or you're losing some of the capa capacity of, like, some of the mirrors are not, you know, reacting correctly. So, okay. you know, a lot of new technology was developed on those algorithms and the software to to position and tell this the mirror, like, how to behave. So it was... Uh, it was very successful. Like I said, it was very successful, but really a, a extremely complex, probably one of the most complex uh, thermal vacuum tests that's ever been carried out. Yeah. So, like you said, years in the making. You were started conversations in 2004, and by 2009, you were already getting this thing ready to go for James Webb, right? Yeah. We were, yeah. Tons of metal was cut and thrown away, and new <laughs> new equipment was coming in. So uh, Yeah. Um, and not just um, the thermal vacuum chamber, right? You are you were also doing the area outside to be a clean room too. Correct. So that's kind of started right after we finished the chamber in twelve. Kind of the clean room picked up in early thirteen. Okay. And uh, and uh, well, that happened pretty fast. I think by sometime in the middle of fourteen, that was done. All right. And like I said, it really uh, has been an exceptional clean room. Um, we were given a certain, you know budget for how dirty the mirrors could get while they're sitting here you know the longer something sits around it's going to just collect yes and uh you know you're given this budget and we actually um stayed well under that budget and of course we were able to use this last probably a week and a half to to do a final cleaning of the mirrors prior to it being shipped to northrop grumman so it's leaving johnson cleaner than when it arrived so that's pretty amazing that's awesome yeah i'm sure well so I'm, I'm trying to imagine the environment that you guys are in so so you're testing it you're in this clean room everything is like super spotless probably one of the cleanest places in the known universe i don't know <laughs> but uh it's super clean you guys are kind of outfitted with these white garments right mm -hmm. that are head to toe make sure no dust or hair or anything is getting on these mirrors yeah and usually you know human uh you know dust is typically like you know some type of human fallout type of thing so you know hair skin cells and other things like that are, are probably the major sources of dust so yeah the you know reducing that monitoring that uh is a big deal and of course uh uh, everything on the spacecraft is real ESD, so everybody's outfitted with, you know, electrostatic type of uh, wristbands when they're oh. working on anything around there, uh, you know. So, uh, but yeah, it's a full head-to-toe uh, head um, garments that are uh, <laughs> uh, quite a bit, you know, it's, it, it takes a good amount of time to get, to get suited up when you go in there. So, yeah, so. I can imagine, especially because of the requirements. It has to be, you know, yes. what's the level of, like you said, the level of clean that is acceptable. So, and I'm sure that cleaning the mirrors is a whole process in of itself, right? You're not just going to be spraying it with Windex and kind of wiping it down, right? No, no, yeah, that was, uh, um, you know, the contamination team uh, let out of Goddard, you know, manage that effort. And uh, it was very arduous task that, uh, you know, they mapped each of the mirrors and you're mapping probably like a few inches at a time. And oh, they, wow. you know, yeah, they're clean, a very small area, black light it, high, high uh, resolution light it, and look for any type of, 
you know, smudge or any dust particles, and they carefully, like, every time you could, you know, get a dust particle, try to remove it and with a, a small brush or something like that. But wow. it was really... Uh, I was surprised at how uh, detailed they were and how they they handled it. But you know, we're done now, and uh, like I said, all the mirrors are are actually quite a bit cleaner uh, now than than when it first got here. So all right. So you said now it's it's kind of wrapped up and ready to ship off to the next place, right? Or are you mm-hmm. still in the process of wrapping it up? No, no, no. We completed all the. So you know, we had the, the big family day. Uh, <laughs> that was a huge success. In, yeah. Uh, uh, the twentieth, and then we repeated it on the second. But yeah. on the third, we really started doing the uh, de- uh, stowing, the opposite of the, the deployments. So we stowed uh, the um, the mirror wings, um, hmm. sto- stowed the deployable tower, and really got it ready for shipment um, soon after that. So, and then once that all those uh, stowing se- uh, se- sequences were done. We began the cleaning process, and so really, there's not a lot left to do except for uh, take it off its turnover fixture and get it into its shipping container, and that's planned for tomorrow. Wow, so. this is exciting! All this, <laughs> all this kind of uh, preparation. You know, you said you're talking so early, and then kind of preparing the chamber. You did it. You tested it. You did it. You know, like you said, under budget, and it was successful. So, I mean, actually, that's a good question. How did the tests go? Oh, the test went really well. <laughs> so the thermal vacuum test, the main part uh, test we called the, the, the Otis uh, cryovac test, um, uh, started in, in early uh, July, and we were under uh, vacuum for about a little, a little over 100 days. So, yeah, right. we, yeah, so we had people around the clock even before then. But, uh, you know, the, the people operating our chamber from Johnson were probably on shift for about 102, 103 days. Um, the, uh, t- took about 30 days to cool the spacecraft down to its flight like t- uh, it took 30 days for the chamber to get down to temperature it could have gotten much faster but this provided the profile they needed okay it took about 40 some days for the cham- for the uh, telescope to really start getting down to its flight like temperatures and start doing start firing up the science instruments which were really sensitive to heat and stuff like that yes um of course, once we're down and just get cold, um, you know, Harvey shows up and oh, uh, <laughs> that beast. Uh, yeah. So, uh, s- but it was uh, we had a lot of plans in place and we executed those plans and got a lot of support from uh, the center to uh, keep things going and mm-hmm. a lot of support from Goddard. Uh, everybody kind of pulled together. Unfortunately, some people didn't get to go home for many, many days. So oh, no. just because they you couldn't. Find a path to their home, or uh, that's right. Their a lot of the relief were... could not, yeah, could not leave their homes and, and get to, into work. So yeah, but uh, we had a lot of preparations for people to be able to do that. And from the Goddard perspective, um, you know, their team was here and locally in hotels, and they were able to get some of the best optical testing done during that time. So uh, wow. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, and so all the optical tests were done. I think they exceeded their requirements on all their stuff as well. So they were really feel like the performance of the telescope is is, uh, is 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 great they're they're delivering a product now that uh, they really believe is gonna do its mission fantastic yeah you've been kind of through the ringer since it's been here huh you had Harvey and just like last week we had that ice storm so yeah you've yes, <laughs> really yes. encountered a couple challenges but you but you did it that's that's quite an accomplishment that's really Thank cool you. yeah no it's been a huge uh, the, the team here at Johnson and the uh, been very dedicated to the success of the mission and the team that's been down here, the international team, 
had all hundreds of people from ESA and stuff supporting this, and uh, uh, everyone's extremely dedicated and, and really believes in what they're doing. So All right. That's so awesome. I, so I kind of wanted to clarify one point is, um, you know, I think we kind of just sort of skipped over it, but Chamber A is was is unique in the fact that, or maybe not unique, and you can clarify this, if it's a thermal vacuum chamber. Correct. So not only does it bring it down to the, you know, the pressure of space, but it's also bringing it down, like you said, 15 Kelvin, but I guess you're yes. testing it at 20 Kelvin. Yeah. Super cold. I don't think people understand how cold that <laughs> is, 20 Kelvin. Yeah, so 20 Kelvin's, uh, you know, about minus 423 Fahrenheit. I mean, it's <laughs> cold enough that um, the only molecules that are moving um, are probably some hydrogen and helium and maybe some neon. And there's not much of that because we have some pumps that work really well to try to get rid of that those those molecules. So uh, yeah. there's not a lot of... Uh, we always tell people like the... Um, when, you, when we're at room uh, sea level pressure... There's about 30,000 pounds of air in that chamber. So, Whoa. you know, you, you think, oh, air doesn't have much mass. When we're down at test temperatures, there's the mass of about a half of a staple in the chamber. That's how many, <laughs> what the mass of all that air is remaining. So, you know, to create that space-like environment. And then, um, like I said, in temperature-wise, like I said, it's the all the uh, nitrogen, oxygen, or the normal air you breathe almost, you know, instantly freezes out when it comes in contact with the surface that cold. Whoa. So it's just, it's really cold. Uh, it's hard to imagine, <laughs> you know, that yeah, there's not much uh, moving around at those temperatures. Yeah, it's just kind of, when you when you say it the way that you say it, it's kind of surprising to think that anything works in that Correct. kind of environment. Yeah. But if you think about it, there's, you know, satellites and probes all over the solar system that we've been sending. And now we're, this is just a, this is another one that's a little bit, you know, it's big yeah. and it's got a lot of uh, it's got a lot of elements to it. But the fact that it's, you know, you can fire up the instruments and they worked, right? All the instruments. Oh, worked. Yeah. yeah. All the instruments worked. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, you know, so so a lot of the instruments had been tested. The, the package was tested uh, at Goddard, like I said, but never tested as a system where in uh, the same with the primary optics, they had never been fully assembled and tested as a system. So it was really a big deal to be able to test the primary mirror, make sure the primary mirror looks like it's acting correctly, then the secondary mirror, and then actually send light um, all the way to the science instruments and know that, oh yeah, you know, you had a simulated star and it's tracking it correctly. And it's what you simulate and are sending is what's being received. And so now, you know, all the elements are where they're supposed to be and in focus. And, you know, because uh, you're, you're talking, you know, a little, uh, you know, probably the thickness of a hair is, is way out of focus for a mirror like this, you know. So, oh. you know, everything's got to be really tight alignment. So Yeah, yeah. Literally, like, a 99% on this test is an F. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. So. Um, so that's kind of cool. You you simulated it looking at a star. Like uh, you kind of, all right, you put it through this pretend environment. Not only are you testing if it can survive the pressure and the cold, but also let's fire everything up and see if this thing can actually see stars. Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, like I said, once the first thing you, well, first thing we had to do is, of course, make sure the primary mirrors look like a monolith. Yes. And then once those things we know, okay, yeah, that looks right. Now the primary mirrors and the secondary mirror, are they in line together? And then the tertiary mirror and then the science instruments, you know, and the thing's got, you know, a small amount of movement to be able to correct, you know, that type of stuff because everything's moving a little bit mm -hmm. and uh, with the temperature. So and that's a big difference between this and Hubble 
is this all the mirrors have uh, some degrees of freedom to be able to slightly move. So they've got actuators on them, allowing ah. you to adjust their focus or adjust their position slightly. Um, and so that was part of the testing is being able to make sure that all that does uh, uh, works. And then um, some of the more challenging testing is what we, you know, would be like a pass and a half where we actually had like a fiber optic what would simulate like a star, um, a point of light, and uh, you'd bounce that off the primary mirror or off the secondary mirror, back off the primary mirror, off our test mirrors at the top of the chamber called autocollimating flats, and then back through that entire path and then to a science instrument. So everything <laughs> had to pass at least um, the primary optics twice and some of the, um, you know, off to the set, uh, science instruments, you know, once. And that was, like I said, any slight vibration or anything like that disturbs the image. And so, wow. you know, you had to, everything weren't really well, like I said, you know, you don't realize how a little bit of shaking or something like that can really, you know, blur a point of light when you're trying to look at a few photons and stuff like that, 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 that the telescope's supposed to be observing. So Yeah, that's right. And you got an A on that test, right? Yeah, yeah. No, everything, I mean, uh, I'm not uh, an optical guy, but it was kind of fun to come in every day. We had, uh, typically every afternoon we had meetings and you could hear the optical guys like, that's the first time we ever tested this? Yeah, and almost every day was a party during the test because they were, it was the first time they had done system level um, uh, tests and uh, completed an objective that... Uh, you know, so they're, they're very excited at the performance. All right. I should so. have been hanging out with you guys every day as a party. That's pretty <laughs> cool. Um, but, yeah, just to see the things, like you said, that you've been working on for so long to come together and you fire them up and they work. I can see that being like, oh, my gosh, yes, yeah. yes, this is doing what I wanted it to do. Yeah. And that was a, it was on the uh, From the Johnson State Center standpoint, it, it, it was kind of uh, almost a little bit benign because hmm. we had – already rung out our chamber and created a, got rid of a lot of any issues we had there so you know we were able to create this environment like when we, the hurricane came and all the rains and floods the, we had some issues with the building but the telescope never knew anything was going on because all <laughs> the, the the facility uh, systems operated as we wanted them to and we really never lost anything so um you know, it wasn't the same excitement for us as it was for the telescope because we had been doing a series of testing and got rid of all our bugs. Yes. So, but it's like almost one of those things like boring testing from creating the environment and doing all that is a good thing because we don't want to be testing any of our stuff out or having any issues with our stuff when we're yes. really trying to test the telescope at this point. So it was great to ring all that out and, and see their excitement uh, as they were able to test the telescope and really to an understanding to really prove that, that it optically is working as they expected and all the little uh, requirements that pass down from some type of science objective were met. So. Yes. And that's that means that you did your job, right? You provided <laughs> the environment for these guys. So, yeah, yeah. The, the team here at Johnson did. Yes, so. you and your team. Absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, very exciting. So you're wrapping up testing. It's all wrapped up and ready to go to, off to its next point. So what's what are the next steps until its launch? It's uh, it's going to Northrop Grumman, you said next? So, yeah, it goes to Northrop Grumman, and uh, at Northrop Grumman, it would uh, be integrated with the SunShield and the spacecraft bus. Um, once it's integrated, I think it, there it goes through a series of vibe and acoustic tests. Hmm. Then they have to do, do a deployment test one more time. All they right. really want to make sure that after they simulate a launch, you can do the deployments. Uh, the sad thing about it is it probably takes about two months to restow everything. You know, oh, it's a, you know, it's really uh, 
you know, a lot of inspections along the way to make sure that everything's folded back correctly. Yes. Um, and all the actuators are reset correctly. Um, and then it should be ready to, to ship out to the launch pad from there. So. All right. So one more stop, and then it goes off to launch. And when, when are we aiming for again? We're uh, no earlier than March of 19, probably more like March probably, 19. Yeah, probably more like summertime, I'm thinking, and 19 is probably where, where it's landing. Okay. So. All right. Very exciting. Yes. It is. It and is. Then it's going to go out to L2, and we're going to see the beginnings of the universe and all those uh, that awesome resume of cool things, <laughs> as exoplanets, the formation of galaxies, and you said stars, too, right? Yeah, I'm expecting one? to see all kinds of like, same things you saw from Hubble. Yeah. You're going to start seeing coming from James Webb, and I'm a, you're, lots of uh, physicists are going to hopefully just see stuff that they didn't even expect to see and try to explain it to us. So I'm really excited about what it's going to do. And Fantastic. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on. I know oh, this I is this is kind of at the end of your testing cycle, and you just have a couple more days until you can say, yes, done, and hands <laughs> off. So I really appreciate you coming in while it's still here. And, you know, you're, you're kind of – I can see the excitement where you're like, yes, this is – we did it. It's, I mean, there's still steps to go, but, but congratulations to you and your team for the successful testing here. And uh, just can't wait to see this thing launch and see the beautiful moon just come back. Thank you. I, I'm excited as well. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked about the James Webb Space Telescope that was here uh, just about two weeks ago at this point. And uh, we just wrapped up testing here in Houston, but it's off to Northrop Grumman. And there's a lot of testing ahead, but eventually it will be launching into space and sending some beautiful images back to Earth. So if you want to see some of the cool testing going on with Webb uh, throughout its journey until its launch uh, next year... You can go to nasa.gov slash web. That's a great resource for all the testing and all the latest uh, check marks and milestones that we're crossing as we get to, towards that launch point. You can also go to www.jwst.nasa.gov. That's uh, Goddard Space Flight Center, but like Jonathan said, that's where the uh, project is managed out of, so there's some pretty cool stuff in there, and uh, it's actually a pretty interactive site. It's pretty cool. On social media, we're pretty active, too, and the James Webb Space Telescope as well. On Facebook, it's NASA's James Webb Space Telescope, or at Webb Telescope. On Twitter, it's at NASA Webb. And on Instagram, it's also at NASA Webb. You can find out some of the latest uh, updates there as well. Otherwise, you can go to the NASA Johnson Space Center sites on any one of those platforms. We say these all the time, guys. You should be following us by now. I know you are because you love us and we love you. Uh, so use the hashtag AskNASA on the Johnson Space Center accounts uh, on to submit a question or an idea for the podcast, and we'll make sure to mention it. Uh, in one of the later episodes, just make sure to mention that it's for Houston We Have a Podcast. So this podcast was recorded on January 25th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Kelly Humphreys, and Jenny Knotts. And thanks again to Mr. Jonathan Homan for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.